Tonight we have a chance to say, yeah, you're right. We're too extreme. We're too wild. We're too out of control. We're too full of our own shit. Or we have a chance to say, hey, fuck you, you're wrong. Fuck you, we're right. Because you have all made it to the dance. Because believe me, this is the dance. Dozens of people spontaneously combust each year. It's just not really widely recorded. Right. Yeah. It's only more than 30 people in Stephenville, Texas, say they saw a UFO. You believe them? Tony Kornheiser, believe him. What do you think was up there getting broke? What is going on, my friends? The live era has begun here for BOA Audio. This is it, BOA Audio Live, or as I'm just calling it now, BOA Live. Who needs the audio? Obviously, it's audio. Anyway, this is the first ever live program, so bear with me. Normally, I get to just look out the window or, uh, you know, have some notes up on the screen while I'm doing a show, but here I've got bells, whistles, numbers dials, all kinds of things in front of me, and a chat room full of people as well. So it's uh, it's going to be exciting. It's going to be different. You don't need me rambling on all night because we've got some fantastic guests here for this inaugural program. And I've been itching to do this show for a while, not just uh, with these two guests, but just the live show in general. Uh, it's going to be exciting because we can do all kinds of cool stuff. And And when I posted the season finale last week, I was like... I want to get started on the live show right away. I couldn't wait. And uh, I was already emailing Bruce and Nick that night saying, you know, can we get this together? Can we do this soon? And and, uh, remarkably, amazingly, uh, we were ready to go a week later. So it's going to be awesome, folks. Our guests are, as you've probably seen from all the hype at the BOA Facebook page, the incomparable Nick Redfern, great friend of the program. He's the author of a myriad of books. This past season on the show, we talked about the pyramids and the Pentagon, as well as final events. He's also the author of the new book, Monster Files, which is dedicated to me. I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, my God. I opened the book. I was, like, stunned and speechless. So I wanted to uh, repay him. I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse, but (laughs) we've got him on the first ever live show. So welcome to the show, Nick. Thanks for taking part in this uh, grand experiment. All right. Well, cheers, Tim. I'm glad to be on it. Hopefully, yeah. You know, there'll be a, a trend where you can continue, where uh, get everybody on live and just say what they want, you know, without uh, without the benefit of censorship. So. Absolutely, <laughs> that's the plan. No rules, no network, no subscriptions, yeah. no uh, no nothing, baby. No agenda, nothing. Just uh, just us having a good time. And of course, alongside Nick, 
is our longtime friend of the show. He's sort of like our patron saint of the underground, and uh, he, he appears on the program in special moments, if you will. So I thought it would be perfect to have him as part of the live premiere as well. He's the author, of course, of Architects of the Underworld, as well as Hollywood versus the Aliens. And he's the star of two big specials at BOA Audio, the uh, the Bruce Rucks trilogy. I was going to say first ever, but I forgot about our good friend Ann Druffle, who also had the first, who did have the first trilogy. And he is uh, the star of Rucks Giving, the annual holiday celebration at BOA Audio. So now that we've got, oh well, welcome to the show, Bruce. <laughs> oh, glad to be here. Well, now that we've got all that out of the way. You know, uh, Bruce, meet Nick. Nick, meet Bruce. <laughs> Hello, Bruce. <laughs> I presume I you guys have actually not... chatted before, have we, Bruce? I don't think. I'm going to step inside here. Hold on a second. I've got noise <laughs> outside. This is why it's fun to do live. Exactly. Bruce. Now, Bruce, uh, Nick said you, you guys haven't crossed paths before, have you? No. This is the first time we've done No, I don't think we have. Yeah. Nice, nice. We'll cross you kind of covered similar stuff in a way, because Bruce did Hollywood vs. the Aliens, and Nick, uh, you had science fiction secrets, right? Which yeah, I just reread. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so that's an area we can kind of get into uh, as we get going. What, what, what stood out to me, though, I was looking at this, because uh, we just talked about pyramids in the Pentagon on the show, Nick, and Bruce has been to the pyramids and studied them, I guess you could say, up close and personal. Cool. So They're I, very I, different up close. <laughs> so I guess... Uh, at the risk of sort of starting on, like, the most super generic question ever, I feel like it's a good way to start out on a jumping-off point, especially with the two kind of diverse guests. And that is, uh, you know, when I first got into all this, I was like, I think uh, I think the pyramids, at first, before I got into the paranormal, I really didn't have an opinion. And then I was like, I think they probably were built by aliens. But now I've kind of wavered a bit about it and said... Uh, you know, maybe not. Maybe they're not made by aliens. Maybe they were made by just advanced humans. But then it's like, well, were they advanced humans or were they gods? And if they were gods, were they aliens? And kind of start chasing your own tail. So I guess uh, we'll start with Bruce here. Bruce, uh, what's your take on where the pyramids themselves originated? And did you gain any insight on that when you went to Egypt and, and you know, talked to uh, folks there, even if they were just uh, lay people? I got a lot of insight going there uh, both times. The first time I went with Zechariah Sitchin, and the second time Robert Baval was there. So I got to know both men pretty well, and we got to chat quite a bit and share theories, and uh, we, we got a lot in. Uh, Baval is an extremely intelligent man, and so was Sitchin. And uh, we've obviously done a hell of a lot of the same research. So we were talking almost as colleagues, which was very nice. I, I very much got that impression from both of them. Um the pyramids are completely different when you see them up close. I mean, the Great Pyramid just dominates the view when you're in Cairo. Uh, it, you really don't get uh, a concept of the size of it when you're driving up to it. When you're right next to it, it doesn't look that impressive because you, all you see is this kind of this sheer wall in front of you. But because of the perspective, you can't see how big it is. When you go inside it, then you really get a feel of how mammoth the thing is. When you go to the Grand Gallery especially and you're going up to the King's Chamber, uh, it's just massive, and you can feel all that uh, weight around you. You can just tell the mass of the pyramid is there. It's a really religious experience. It's incredible. It's, it's impossible to describe. You just have to do it. Yeah. Uh, and if you're going to go to Egypt, I just have to say this to anybody, uh, you have to go in the Great Pyramid. It doesn't do just to see it. You have to go in it. 
Uh, I would also recommend everyone go to Upper Egypt and Luxor because that's just the most beautiful place in all of Egypt. But, um, but where do they come from? What do you think? Right, I was just getting to that. I know, I know. <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad you brought that up anyway. Um, <clears throat> I do believe that they were built by humans. However, I also believe those humans did not come from this planet. So they were built by aliens and by humans, if you want to put it that way. Uh, my own thesis is that the human race are the descendants of people that came from another planet in antiquity, a very, very long time ago. So it's still a human accomplishment. And uh, beyond anything that we're able to do today, certainly, uh, we don't know how they were built. That's the most fun you can have talking with Robert Baval, and his brother was there too, Jean-Paul. They're both engineers. Uh, so we spent a lot of time just talking about the engineering logistics and trying to do it as realistically as possible and say, well, let's let's just exclude any kind of Superman here. How would you build this? And how would you build these temples? Uh, how do you cut rocks like this and fit them together in such fashion? And Jean-Paul was uh, had probably had the best answer to all of that. He kept bringing that up. He would he would just mention the weight and the size, and we're standing right next to the damn blocks. You know, they're they're way bigger than we are. Any one of us. Uh, there are some blocks in the temple, uh, the temple of the Sphinx, for instance, that you know are twice the size of a human being. You can jump up to the top and grab it and and climb up, um, and you know they're almost as wide. And the things are just tons, massive number of tons. So Jean-Paul would be pointing a lot of this stuff out, and he'd say, well, you know, uh, we don't build like this. They did because it was easy. For them, it was easy. And I always had to throw out that question. I'd just get that devilish grin on my face and say, what was that easy way? And he would very simply say, I don't know. But it was easy for them. It had to be. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done it. They would not have built like this if it was not easy for them to do. And you just have to agree with him. Say, whatever technique they had, and we have no idea what that technique was, it was not that hard for them. Now, I imagine there there had to be some effort in in the construction, obviously, and it must have taken some time, whatever their method was. They didn't put them up overnight. Uh, They could have taken generations to put them up. We just don't know. Yeah. But plainly, they were able to move massive weights and put these things together uh, probably with no more difficulty than we put up skyscrapers. In other words, there's some effort involved. It's going to take some time, but we can do it. Yeah, that makes sense. What do you What do you think, Nick? The origins of all this? Well, I mean, that's a good question. The biggest problem, of course, when we're dealing with anything like this, is is the time frame. You know, it's not like we can sort of go and ask somebody's grandfather or great grandfather <laughs> or whatever. You know, as to how did you do it? Because it's just too many generations in the past. But I think the one thing. You know, like Bruce just accurately said, the one thing that sort of puzzles everybody is how it was achieved. Um, you know, they're, they're clearly there. It's like the same with, with Stonehenge, you know, where I'm originally from in England. Um, I first went there as a kid, and that sort of got me fascinated first time I went there in sort of ancient mysteries. But now, of course, it's kind of like the pyramids, but in reverse, that everybody thinks Stonehenge is gigantic. <laughs> you know, but it's actually not. You know, yeah. it's like um, it's perimeter all the way around, so to speak. It's like a, you know, it's just not large at all. You know, it's relatively small. But even so, you've got multi-ton stones raised like 25 to 30 feet in the air. Um, you know, and placed on two standing stones. So you know, you've got an enigma there as well. And what I fascinates me, and something I've dug into quite deeply, are the legends and myths relating to how they were built, not how today theoretically they're done but if you look back at a lot of the legends whether it's from 
uh, like South America, Mexico, UK with Stonehenge. A lot of these places have legends about these stones sort of being magically moved to the sound of music or to like magical instruments. And it's kind of like they're talking about, in a distorted folkloric fashion, talking about sound. And there's sort of a a fringe area of research called uh, acoustic levitation, the idea of using sort of directed acoustic waves to move objects. And, you know, I don't for one minute believe that the stones are moved to some sort of magical flute or something like that. But if you take away the folkloric, you know, generational distortions... I do actually wonder if it was something like this, like a high uh, technology that used acoustics and sounds to somehow manipulate things and, and raise these massive stones into place. Well, it's interesting. I was thinking about this the other day, uh, thinking about talking to you guys and stuff. It seems like there's a wealth more stuff we should know about the pyramids. Uh, isn't there like a theory that there's more underneath them and if they just dug out the sand that uh, I think it was like the Sphinx or something, that it would be quite more elaborate or, or something like that, or maybe the pyramids would be bigger. I mean, have they ever considered I, – I presume, you know, they haven't because they haven't done it, but, I mean, has there been talk about what may be under the sand, if you will, uh, where the pyramids Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah, many times. Uh, esoteric traditions have, have always believed, the underground um, orders and such, have always believed that there's a, a sort of library or hall of records beneath the Sphinx and that there's a causeway that connects it to the pyramids. Uh, the causeway, at least, we know is accurate. We can see that now because there's subsidence. And when you take aerial photographs, you can see the subsidence. There's a, there's a causeway underneath there somewhere. As to why they haven't actually gone into it, that's a really good question. Uh, there is some official resistance to doing a lot of that. Uh, Zai Hawass is no longer there. He kind of left under a cloud with all the revolution going on in Egypt. Right. Uh, so he's not exactly a block anymore, but... Better the devil you know. We don't know who's in now <laughs> or who's going to be in. Right. It's and, so chaotic uh, over there that, you know. Right. It, it's very chaotic. Uh, it was chaotic when I went the second time. We we never felt threatened or in danger or anything, but everything was definitely in chaos. Uh, for instance, the uh, Cairo Museum was only partly open when we were there because they were afraid of various attacks or people wanting to come in and plunder or whatever. So uh, things were a bit different when we were there the second time than when we were the first. And there had been a terrorist attack before we went the first time, which took you know, the tourism down like 90%. Jesus. Uh, we didn't feel threatened then either, uh, although the, the travel agency did say that they would refund our money completely if we wanted to, to drop, even though it was past the date. Uh, we all went, and then nobody dropped. We all went. And we did have a terrorist scare while we were there, sort of. Uh, between going to Luxor and Cairo, we, we were stuck for a full hour and a half or so, um, just on the tarmac, we couldn't take off. Uh, we didn't know why, and sure enough, they escorted a couple guys off uh, who were Irish, as a matter of fact. And, oh, weird. Uh, and they had like not exactly provocative T-shirts on, but there was something you know not exactly kosher about them. They they would make people <laughs> uneasy uh, under the circumstances. So they got escorted off after about uh, an hour and a half, hour forty-five minutes, and then we were able to take off and go from Luxor to Cairo. But now I've completely gone off the track of the original question, which was... Just stuff under the sand. Under the sand. Yes, the uh, the Hall of Records, the causeway. We know there's a causeway there. They haven't gone into the causeway. Uh, they are also... That we know sure. of, though. Isn't it the possibility that they, that they... I mean, part of me thinks that it stands to reason um, that it, these things have been around forever. Uh, we, it, I figured that it had to have been done already, almost. 
Yeah, the problem with that is, how would you do it and not have anybody notice? But isn't it underground, like under the sand? Yes, it's under the it's underground and under the sand. Uh, you would have to dig to get in there. Oh, okay. And, All right. I didn't know you could go in from a tunnel from inside one of the buildings. Uh, well, if you could get to it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. It's underneath there, but we don't have an entrance to get underneath there. You'd have to dig a way underneath there. Yeah. Uh, in theory... There's a connection somewhere underneath the pyramid that connects to the Sphinx, but we have no idea where that is. We wouldn't know how to get to it. Uh, I imagine that it would be underneath the uh, the underground well there. Yeah. Um, but we haven't found it. We don't know where any of that is. Hmm. So if they have gotten into it, they've certainly been uh, clandestine about it to the point that no one's noticed. Uh, you'd have to have digging equipment there. It would be pretty hard to hide. All right. What do you, what do you think, Nick, in general, about all well, this talk of uh, stuff hidden under there? Yeah, I'm kind of pretty much in line with what Bruce said. I mean, you know, we hear a lot of stories about records and ancient secret manuscripts that possibly tell stories about, you know, the origins not just of the pyramids, but perhaps even older civilizations that we maybe don't even know anything about. But, yeah, I mean, I think the important thing to remember is that people think of the pyramids and they think they're way out in the middle of nowhere in the desert. Mm. You know, they're actually not. You know, they sort of just loom on the horizon, you know, Cairo. Um, and there are people out there, you know, tourists all the time taking pictures. So, yeah, I think it would be incredibly difficult um, to sort of dig under the pyramids in a new way or whatever, and, you know, extensively dig and not have anybody know what was going on. You know, it's not like somebody digging around the deserts of Roswell for a bit of memory metal or whatever, you know, uh, in the middle of literally nowhere. I mean... You know, the, the the situation with the pyramids is very, very different. You know? Yeah, I guess I'm clinging to the idea that I'm talking about, like, you know, 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Yeah. Like, why why couldn't oh. they have just do, gone in and done all that then? We would have no idea. Like, I don't know anything about the history of Egypt. Well, that's of a possibility. You know, kind of... Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we, I mean, there's always, you know, a lot of talk about ancient manuscripts and... Um, you know, records, etc., um, you know, being destroyed in the past, and who knows, certain mm. things may not have been destroyed, they may have been removed, you know. Yeah, kind of like, a, if you draw the comparison, sort of like to the the old story of the uh, Knights Templar, and how they, mm. the theory is they found the the uh, the temple and, and got all the records. It's like, what's the, you know, I guess you could take it and almost apply it to a hypothetical situation of mm. similar Something nature. Like- yeah, I, I, I don't even disagree with that. I mean, the Templars got around quite a bit, and we know they did a lot of esoteric research and, and were finding manuscripts and such. We don't know exactly what they did with all of that, uh, and there's a lot of speculation. I know there are a lot of Freemasons who believe that, that their entire tradition came out of the Templars, um, and the Freemasons obviously are very, very interested in Egypt, uh, although there's there's not much overtly connected to Egypt anywhere in Masonic ritual, but they all like to hearken back to that, and there are a good number of them who think that there was some kind of an underground transmission of knowledge, whether it was uh, continuous and direct, or whether it was something that was resurrected at a later time, they do think that there's some kind of a a connection back to antiquity. Uh, The Egyptians themselves, this is something to bear in mind, like about the pyramid and about knowledge of Egypt in general. Uh, Most of our knowledge from Egypt, almost all of it, comes from Herodotus, and Strabo and people that were uh, much closer to the turn of the millennium. Um, I mean, they when they were talking to people in Egypt, they just asked them 
questions about the pyramids, and these people would give them the best answer they knew. But they were as far removed in time from the people that built the pyramids, even if you accept the standard dating for that, as we are from Alexander the Great. And they didn't have the kind of transmission of knowledge that we do. They didn't have books to go to to read and, and consult. So literally, they were just they were talking hearsay. They were talking legend. None of them had the slightest idea how those damn things were built. And therefore, the, the information that we got um, from our historians is just hearsay. And they even our historians even say that. Say, look, I don't know. This is just what the, I asked a guy, and he told me this. <laughs> That's all we have. That's all we have. I wanted to mention really quickly too. Uh, the idea of sound for levitation is something that uh, I also happen to concur with. I believe that's it's encoded in all of the myths. They all talk about music or something of the sort. Uh, Apollo dancing the stones into place with the music of his harp, for instance, or with the music of a lute. Uh, Merlin was said to have danced the stones of Stonehenge into place. It's called the Giant's Dance. Uh, there are all kinds of legends, but they all seem to go back to the question of sound and levitation. I just wanted to throw that in really quickly. Well, it's amazing that that uh well it's like a lot of things nature stuff like that you know the modern human race has no time for that kind of stuff yeah i think if you like if you told a regular person yeah a regular person if you told a, <laughs> a lay person on the street your coworker or whatever if you were like right. yeah sound levitate they would just scoff at you you know they they wouldn't even believe it it's kind of weird it's the consistency of it uh, the incas also had a legend that uh, there was some kind of sound involved in levitating objects and there are placards to that effect in museums uh, showing Inca things. They talk about um, sound having levitated things. Uh, with hammer blows, I think is how they put it, uh, the resonation of hammer blows. So, yeah, there is a recurrence of the idea of sound levitating objects. Uh, if you look at the obelisks, just for a single example, like Cleopatra's needles, uh, those are actually hollow, and they do resonate, as does the um, the king's coffer in the pyramid. Uh, I mean, if you give them a, a good hearty slap with your hand, it's going to resonate on a note. You can hear it. Uh, I think that that resonation might actually make the objects lighter while they are resonating. I'm not positive of that. I mean, I'd have to talk to physicists and, and really get an idea for whether or not that could happen, but I think it might make them lighter while they're resonating and make it a lot easier for them to just kind of pull it up into place, like you see in the actual hieroglyphs. Yeah. Uh, so it's something to examine, or it's something physicists should be examining, and I, I don't know whether they are or not. Well, that brings me... I was going to fast-forward this to the uh, to the modern era, because it was something we kind of talked about a little bit, uh, Bruce and I, before uh, last night when we were, trying, when we were trying to get all the logistics of all this. This live madness straightened out, and I, I kind of want. Oh, we'll start. We'll turn it to Nick first. Uh, this is a big bailiwick of mine on the show here, and I've been beating it for a while. And I don't think I've posed this question to either one of you guys. Uh, and like I said, we're gonna we're gonna move from the pyramids to 2013. We're gonna jump fast forward a little bit. And uh, I, I, I've bemoaned the ubiquity of cell phones and sort of this uh, technological infestation of the human race that's happened, uh, let's say, in the last dozen or so years. And uh, I, I want to turn it over to you, Nick, and just get your take on, you know, I guess you could say this beyond paranormal, just the state of the human race as we get more uh, enveloped by technology, and, and it's inescapable. Well, you know, I mean, nobody wants to sort of turn back the clocks and, you know, be without the technology. Um, hmm. I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, the Internet, cell phones, um, you know, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. I think the the important thing is that 
when you use this technology that it doesn't dominate your life at the expense of a normal life and by that I mean you know it's like today you you look at kids you know they they get up they go to school they come home they go to the room watch tv go on the you know laptop or whatever ipad iphone texting you know just and they don't really socialize in the way we used to you know riding your bike around town till eight o'clock at night or yeah. god forbid <laughs> you go out at eight o'clock at night because your kids are going to get murdered or whatever you know <laughs> um and so what happens is that you know, social interaction suffers, or you could argue it's changing for the worse. You know, I would say it's for the worse when, you know, the you actually have a conversation on a machine rather than just actually talking um, in person. You know, God forbid people would do that. <laughs> you know? So um, I kind of take the approach that, but I also take the approach that if, you know, the human race becomes sort of, almost like isolated from each other then people only have themselves to blame you know i use a cell phone for work you know if i want to socialize with friends or whatever i'll go down the pub or watch a soccer game or whatever in person you know i don't Mm. allow i use the technology from a, a positive perspective but i don't allow it to overtake me as a person and i think that's the important thing and that's what people should be aware of is that you know hanging out on facebook with 500 friends doesn't actually mean you've got 500 friends <laughs> you, know, you, you don't see them they are friends in one sense but you need people need interaction we're we're like interactive creatures you know if people are left alone for a long period you know they go crazy because we're not we're not supposed to be like that yeah it's it's bizarre you know I feel like an old old dude. I mean, I just started texting recently, like a year ago, and it's like it's still, I don't like it. It's awful, but you got to text if you want to be well, <laughs> if you want to well, be part of it. this society. I don't hate it in the slightest, but I use it for when I need to text somebody. Yeah, you know, but but I don't use it as an as an alternative to actually having personal interaction. You know, that's what I mean. Yeah. It's like these yeah. text conversations. It's like it's yeah, that's you know. Where are you? Don't even get me, oh, I'm yeah. in Walmart. I'm just picking up a bag of sugar. <laughs> so yeah. Cares, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's crazy, you know. Um, well, what do you think? Uh, and you know, either one of you guys can feel free to jump in on this. Part of the coolness, I guess you could say, it's not particularly topical, but it's as topical as uh, as uh, we get in this this part of the conversation. But part of the whole problem, I think. I mean, I like all this technology. It's great. I mean, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing right now if not for all that. So exactly. it's, it's fantastic in that sense. Um, but we see now, we've seen this summer that all the stuff that we, with people like us, have been talking about for years is pretty much true and that the government's just watching us all the time. And, you know, we've essentially facilitated that we've jumped on board. You know, we've, we've swum into the net. Um you know, and that got everybody. After 9-11, there was just a whole implementation of everything that no one ever wanted to see put into place, locked into place, with official sanction. Uh, and there's no escaping it. There's nothing you can do about it. What are you going to protest? Your government has now sanctioned it. <laughs> it's there. You're stuck with it. Right, but the funny part is is that, like, the we willingly did it. You know, they coded it in this candy coding of, like, you know, you can connect to everybody and do all this stuff, and it's like... I'm sure they knew all along that this would be a great tool to harvest information from. Oh, and they've been using it. They were using it before 9-11. Uh, 
I, when the entire thing came up about the NSA spying recently, I just laughed. I said, what, you didn't know this was going on? This has been going on since 1952. <laughs> the only thing that's changed is that our technology has improved. Uh, the mere fact that they're telling you about it, like we found out about this? No, we didn't find out about this. This has been going on for flipping ever. Some of you may have just found out about this. But anytime the government wants to pick up whatever information you've got, believe me, they can get it. And they've been able to get it all this time. All they're doing is improving their techniques and being able to get more of it a lot quicker and collate it faster. But this is nothing new. Well, Nick, you've looked at all this. You've looked at extensively at sort of the idea of spying and all that good stuff. So, uh, what, what's your take on? I mean, the government must be lo- like they must be thrilled about all this. Not that it came out, but I'm sure they were thrilled that they could do it all. Well, you know, I mean, I think it's like. Um I mean, you find this in lots of aspects of the world today. I mean, it's almost like a culture of of change in the sense that, you know, you can even take away at the government out of the angle. You know, I mean, um, just any place, you know, they want your information. They want your private information. I mean, like phone companies, they want to be able to send you ads and things like that, you know. It's yeah, like, yeah. Um, Although obviously that the government angle is in the news right now, but it's kind of like it's every it's in every aspect of culture and society that um, you're watched more and more, and um, you know your privacy is less and less. Um, you know you find it in in stores, you know anywhere. Um, it, it's just like a weird culture of of change. And um, but yeah, Bruce is right. I mean, certainly the internet has changed the way in which surveillance, you know, is undertaken. Um, and it's made it much easier because everybody's plugged into the internet for the most part. But, I mean, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, there were wiretaps on phones and things like that, mail interception, you know, postal mail, I mean, that kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah there's nothing new. Um, I think what's, what's changed is the technology and the sheer scale and the ease of, eave, of eavesdropping. Yeah, yeah. And, it, it, you know, on the one hand, it's like party wants to get scared about it. And you're like, oh, no, they're reading all my emails and everything. But then it's like, well, they've kind of been watching us all along anyway, and they've left me alone. So, And like Bruce said, what are you, what are you really going to do about it, you know? I don't have time to encrypt all my emails and stuff with uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, those I mean, rings. We were having this conversation, uh, some friends and I, just recently. And uh, one of them was very much on me. Well, I, I prefer the security uh, and I'm willing to sacrifice the privacy. And uh, the idea of love letters came up. And this guy actually said, well, anything serious, you know, you just need to encrypt it. I thought, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to encrypt my love letter. That's right, I think I'll write my love letter in code. That sounds good. <laughs> Darling, I just wanted to say E equals MC squared. Uh, no, that doesn't quite work. And how are you going to encrypt it anyway? They can break all the encryptions. If they really want to spy on you, if they really want to know what you've got, they're going to get it, period. None of us has sufficient uh, cryptology technique. Uh, we, don't, we don't have the equipment to encrypt to the point that these people can't read what we have. Now, there's a certain practical reality to this, which has zip to do with terrorism. What it has to do is simply with information. Uh, you have to know we're not the only people that are doing this. The Russians are doing it. The Chinese are doing it. Everybody is doing it. So you need to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak. And I have to admit that is a practical reality, and it is something that has to be considered. The real question is, what do they do with it? 
Uh, we know, for instance, that J. Edgar Hoover abused it horribly with COINTELPRO and used it to personally blackmail people that he didn't like, like Martin Luther King. Uh, this kind of abuse is, is very, very easy to do with this kind of surveillance. Knowledge is power. Uh, we're just lucky we haven't really been hit by it. Yeah. But if they want to hit anybody personally, they can do it really bad. Now you're scaring me again, Bruce. Yeah, but it, again, it's nothing new. <laughs> That's true. Uh, and, true. And there isn't a, there's not a damn thing you can do about it. Who are you going to complain to, your congressman? Uh, our congressman ratified the damn thing. Yeah, exactly. What do you think, Nick? Well, yeah, I mean, when you said, um, you know, the, the whole issue of, of being watched and, you know, what's being done with the information, I think these are all the sort of valid areas that people want answering. You know, I don't think um, it's a case, it's a black and white case of people saying, you know, we, we want to know what's going on, what's being done with everything, etc., etc. It's purely and simply that people don't necessarily understand the concept of everything. And even within government, there are people who don't really understand the scale and the concept of what's going on and to what extent it's going on. So I think this is why there's a lot of debates confusion and and just you know general questions being asked purely and simply because we just we just really don't know you know it's not like we've got a full picture and on the one hand you have people saying well it's justified other people saying well it's okay and somebody else saying no it's not we're still trying to put together the strands of of how you know extensive all this is and what it actually means and what's done with it so you know my view is that i'm pretty sure that in the months ahead more and more information will come out you know what that will mean in terms of how we look at it and appreciate it and understand it i'm not sure or if it'll just sort of you know sort of fog things up even more you know? no. yeah yeah well it's also this like news cycle thing you know you barely if the snowden thing was huge at the beginning of the summer but now kind of people aren't even talking about it so it's out of everyone's hands now snowden is gone and this is almost a case in point. Where did he go? He went to Russia. <laughs> <laughs> well, your your point was good, Bruce, in the sense that, like, uh, I, I actually could, you know, I would sort of, like, just eliminate the even any sort of issues with all this if the government just came out and they were like, obviously Russia and China are doing this, so we got to do it too. Don't don't blame us. Blame them, you know. They'd be like, <laughs> oh, okay. That's Jones's fine. thing. And that's been the problem with technology all the way down the line. Uh, Nick made a valid point. Uh, we need more human interaction, and a lot of people in government don't even know what it is they're ratifying. Uh, they don't understand the technology involved. They're sold a bill of goods. Someone just gives them a sales speech, and they say, yes, this sounds good, and they just put their imprimatur on it. But they don't really know what it is they're okaying. When Eisenhower was in office, that whole famous speech that he gave when he was leaving office, he had no idea uh, just how extensive the military-industrial complex was or what it was doing. And he's a five-star general, for God's sake. <laughs> he didn't know what all was going on until he left office. Uh, we have everything so bureaucratized and so separated now, uh, no one can keep track of everything that's taking place. And you always have to wonder, who really is the spider at the center of the web here? Because there are all kinds of different places that, that people can be insinuating themselves and gain power that no one even knows about. Right. That makes. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Someone, yeah, some guy like weasels his way into the control room of Harp through some kind of bureaucratic thing, and then he's like, "I can make earthquakes." 
And it's like, and, no, and dude, they, don't they, don't do that. <laughs> and they could do it right in front of everybody with no even knowing what they were doing. Exactly. Yeah, he's just like, you know, he just dials some number, and next thing you know, there's an earthquake in Turkey, and he's like, that was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> oh, jeez. Well, somebody, Hillbilly asked about, uh, in the chat room, Hillbilly asked about uh, shadow government. That's kind of what we're talking about, you know. Uh, Nick, what do you what do you think? I mean, you've again, you've you've really looked extensively at sort of like the the shadow history, if you will, of of the U.S. all these years. Uh, who's really pulling the strings? Do you think is is it sort of a more of a? I feel like it's kind of this, you know, like an economic based government now. You know, where the, the people with the money, as it always has been, probably, but you know, now especially, it's like the people with the money pull the strings, and, and we're kind of shit out of luck. Well, you know, it's, I think it's the rollerball uh, argument. I just have to throw that one in. There are no nations; there are only corporations. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's true. But I'm not sure it hasn't, to a degree, always been like that. You know, it's like money, money influences things, money changes things. You know, and mm. um, and we should we should never forget that. That goes back to the earliest years of civilization. Um, I just think in in today's world, I think certainly. The line is blurred between, you know, this issue of government and I won't so much say secret government. That sounds a little bit too simplistic and overly conspiratorial. But I do think there are sort of powerful figures who are able to exact a lot of pressure and influence outside of sort of congressional oversight and things like that. And it may not be, you know, like a a group of 20 people with evil faces rubbing their hands together, you know, like a bunch of supervillains. But it may be sort of subtle pushes here and there that achieve aims where, really, it's done so subtly, you're not able to find it. And I also think, you know, with, you know, I do a lot of work, obviously, in the UFO field. Mm. And I think that, unlike a lot of people who believe there are UFO conspiracies, I don't sort of demonize the official government. You know, I don't view the government as the bad guys. I'm perhaps one of the few people who don't believe that when the Air Force put out its study on Roswell and said they thought it was a mogul balloon, I don't think that was the Air Force lying or coming up with a cover story. I think if you read the entire report, as I've done, like the 900-plus page report, the original one, which doesn't yeah. get that much coverage, if you read that, I think they really did go knocking on every door but came up blank but felt in, you know, they had to come up with an answer. And so they came up with the one that, from their perspective, best fit the evidence. But, of course, it was flawed in many respects. I don't think the Air Force was lying. What I think, at all, I don't think they were lying in the slightest. What I think is that the truth of Roswell is buried so deep that today's Air Force couldn't even get to the bottom of it, but they felt obliged, you know, well, we've got to present something at least. So let's have a look what the alternatives are. And so sometimes I think, Governments um, get demonized because even the government doesn't necessarily know that there's something buried deeper than them, you know. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm intrigued by your take there on Roswell, though. So you're saying sort of like they didn't know any better, they didn't know exactly what happened, so they just went with, like, the most likely thing? Yeah, I don't think they just said, oh, screw it, you know, we'll just come up with this. I think they looked at what was going on in New Mexico and thought, well, this one sounds plausible, Possibly that was it, and it's our best estimate or guesstimate, if you like, and we'll present it because at least we've got to do show we did something. But I, I really don't think a bunch of people in the Air Force sat around and said, right, we're going to hide the crashed UFO story behind a mogul balloon and crash test dummies. I think they went looking, 
and they genuinely didn't find anything because it's deeply buried by, by somebody else. And I think that's the thing, is often people target governments when, you know, most people in government are just like us, you know. Um, yeah. They're not a bunch of shape-shifting reptilians, you know. But that <laughs> yeah. doesn't mean that beyond the ABC of all these agencies, there isn't somebody else who is like the real string puller. And I mm. think those are the ones to focus on, but nobody really knows who they are, you know. Right, right, yeah. That's like sort of like the MJ-12 argument or uh, yeah, Collins Elite, like if you will. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. If you remove the word conspiracy and simply replace it with policy, suddenly everything just makes sense. It's not a conspiracy to keep UFOs secret from the public. It is policy to keep the UFOs secret from the public. Uh, you don't have to. The, the average rank-and-file guy and even a lot of the very high-ranking officers in the Air Force probably don't know that much about UFOs. They may not have had direct exposure to it themselves, and it's not part of their daily operating procedures to know about it. Uh, and so until they get some kind of exposure, they're not brought into the loop, and they're only brought into the loop insofar as they need to be. They're debriefed. Uh, people aren't briefed on anything more anymore. They're debriefed. Once they find out enough stuff, they say, okay, look, this is the situation, and then they're clued in. But even then, they're only clued in to a certain extent. So you can control the results of, of any study. And what Nick is saying is true. They probably did an honest investigation, but the honest investigation deliberately had a great deal withheld from it. And the people that were doing the investigation were not people that had any kind of real knowledge about the history of UFOs or about Roswell. And they're not going to find the necessary records to prove anything else than they're going to put out in the report. Right, exactly. So they were just sort of like, all that information is long gone. <laughs> Who's being used? Who's, Who's being used? Who's, oh, the people, people that made the reporter being used? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, clearly. They're just collecting a paycheck. That's the, that's a government job for you. Jacques Vallée is a classic case in point. He basically started out as J. Allen Hynek's secretary, but he was doing much more investigation than Hynek was, and even he recognized early on. He said, look, Hynek is holding on to stuff privately that he's not telling me. He's having private conversations with people and not cluing me into everything that's going on. And once Valet started finding out what was going on, he's hired straight into the Defense Department and suddenly shuts up about all of it. Well, just to, again, we get back to sort of uh, contemporary events. Since we're live, folks, it doesn't even feel live. It feels like it's just a regular BOA audio, which is outstanding. Um, you know, they had this big event um, in April, I know you've heard of this, Nick. I don't know if you're familiar with this one, Bruce. It was the uh, the Citizens Hearing on Disclosure. And uh, we've, we've talked endlessly about disclosure on the show uh, because disclosure seems to be an endless topic of conversation in the UFO community. Um, but I guess I wanted your take, Nick, in general, just on what you thought of uh, you know that uh, the latest salvo, I guess you could say, in, in the disclosure war that happened in April. Yawn. Yeah, I mean, my my view on disclosure is this, that I, you know, I have a lot of respect for people in the disclosure movement. Uh, You know, I have 100% respect for them because they're galvanized, they're energetic, they're pushing forward, they're enthusiastic, and they're driven. And that's everything you need. But the cynic in me simply cannot accept or believe that simply by petitioning or collecting thousands of signatures, that that is somehow going to influence people who clearly don't want information released. You know, I mean, 
call, call, I mean, call me a silly. I don't care because I mm. am cynical about it. I just don't see any chance in hell of a bunch of people complaining or protesting or sending petitions in and that it will actually achieve something that, you know, has been hidden for 60 years and that the people who are hiding it clearly don't want to release. Um, and probably when those people aren't even a part of the elected government. You know, this comes back to the reason why, you know, I'm a conspiracy theorist who doesn't demonize the government because I don't believe it's the elected government hiding it. I think it is like these so-called SAP, special access programs, as they call them, that, you know, like in, in simple terms, like a black budget program that isn't really a part of official, you know, the official record even, or the official budget. Um, so it's no good complaining to Obama or, you know, Bush or whoever comes next. Yeah. They're, they're, you know, you, you talk, you, you're approaching the wrong people because... You know, they may know more, but they're not the ones pulling the strings. So, you know, I just don't see that disclosure has a chance in hell of happening. And of course, the other thing is, if disclosure does occur and bunches of files are released, but they don't actually say what the disclosure people are expecting to hear, you know, what if they actually did release the files and they say, well, yeah, we've got thousands of weird reports, but Roswell really was just a balloon. You know, it, it has got blown out of proportion, but the rest of the reports are true. Well, the disclosure people wouldn't believe that. They wouldn't think it's real disclosure. So right, it's kind right. of like it's kind of like you're in this stalemate where they want disclosure, but if disclosure isn't what they are expecting or anticipating, it won't be seen as disclosure. You know. Yeah, I was thinking that uh, while you were saying that because it's like maybe you know what I can see happening. Totally can see happening is uh, is the government just pulling a, a UK situation where they're like, you know what? All right, we're going to release a, a shit ton of uh, UFO files, you know, but they're going to be all sanitized and stuff, and that's going to keep everybody from, you know, that's going to keep everybody tied up now for, well, let's say, a generation or that 10 happens. years. In the 1980s and 90s, there was that big cause lawsuit uh, against the government using the Freedom of Information Act to release uh, UFO information, UFO files. That dragged on for a very long time. First, the government said, no, there's not a single agency or bureau that has any interest in UFOs whatsoever. Uh, then, when the suit came up, they said, well, okay, we did have some interest and we do have a few documents, but we're not going to release them. Uh, then they fought them in court for a very long period of time, and it was very expensive, and cause one. They released a hell of a lot of documents. Some of them were blacked out literally from beginning to end. Uh, and a number of them, there are just masses and masses and masses of documents, and this is where the bureaucratization actually works in your favor. They don't have time to go over all of them and redact everything. <laughs> there are simply too many of them. <laughs> so if you have the patience to go through those documents, you'll find a wealth of material. And if you want to do your own investigation and put things together, which is what I did, and you put together your own information. If we had disclosure, what Nick was saying was if it was disclosed, how would you know that they were telling you the truth or not? I mean, what would you have as any kind of yardstick to prove whether they were telling you the truth or not? You wouldn't, because they still have the documents. Uh, you have to go through the documents yourself to find it. And if you do, you will be rewarded. Your patience will be rewarded, but it is going to take a hell of a lot of patience and a hell of a lot of time. Uh, you're just going to have to come to your own conclusions. The government officially is never going to release anything about this until whoever it is upstairs lands. When they land in front of everybody and come out and Klaatu comes out with Gort, 
then <laughs> then they're all going to say, oh, yeah, we knew all about this. We were just keeping it secret from you for every good reason. And then they will reveal as many good reasons as they need to. And then they'll all be racing to the microphone to be the first to claim credit for it. But there's nothing I'm, – I'm fully convinced that there's nothing going on that the government is not fully aware of. Uh, I just pick up tip of the iceberg. But right, right. They well, know what's going on. Well, uh there's another point there too, where you say, you know, how can we even trust what the government's going to say? Uh, you know, the the, the the frustratingly enigmatic part of the whole UFO mystery is we can't trust what the uh, aliens say either, or whatever they are. So it's like we don't we don't have anyone we can trust, and there God a, knows you can trust anybody in ufology. So there was a French researcher in ufology back in the 1960s who said. You can't find out the truth about this because not only is there a tremendous amount of suffocation on the subject from our end of things, but plainly the guys on the other side don't want it to get out either. So obviously with everyone trying to keep their activities secret, how are you really going to figure out what's going on? <laughs> well, Nick, uh, in relation to the FOIA strategy, as I, as I sort of uh, put out there, it, we've seen it in practice over in the U.K., and of course you're from the U.K. originally and you've been there uh you know, back and forth quite a bit over the years. What do you, what do you, how is the perspective, I guess you could say, uh, from the average person on UFOs, you know, been enhanced or changed at all, if at all, you know, by, by all these, because every time there's a, there's a batch release, it's like all over the news there and stuff, or at least uh, on the online news. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the important thing to note is that certainly, I mean, in the sort of 25 years or so I've been active in the subject, you know, I, I have seen a change, uh, I mean, a good change, where the media doesn't just write it all off nowadays. They are intrigued by the fact that files exist and that for every 95 reports in the files of lights in the sky, you know, there are, there are a couple from military personnel. I mean, a lot of people think the British files are just filled with reports of light in the sky. They're not. I mean, there are dozens of files at the British National Archives in a place called Richmond, Surrey, just outside London. The, the 50s reports are packed with radar reports, with sightings of UFOs hovering over airfields. There's a famous one from a place called RAF Topcliffe in Yorkshire in 52, where a whole bunch of military personnel saw this gleaming saucer that shot away at high speed, only 500 feet above the runway. You know, so you've got things like this. A lot of reports are very, very credible. But I think we're, not, we're clearly not seeing all the reports because for everything like this, we still get, you know, the classic 80-year-old guy who comes forward with a story that's really fantastic and he's got qualifications and he can verify who he was, but that story is just not in the files. You know, so again, we're seeing things that, excuse me, we're not seeing things that we should be seeing. So, yeah, the FOIA can be useful, and there's no doubt that some very interesting files have surfaced through FOIA, but the mere fact that they're interesting doesn't mean that's the be-all and the end-all. And, you know, the challenge is, well, well, where are these other files? And I'll be the first to admit, we're literally up a brick, against a brick wall, maybe even a literal brick wall, you know, <laughs> uh, where we just cannot get beyond the FOIA material. We've got FOIA material... And we've got credible people who are saying things that go beyond FOIA, but we can't get it, you know. And I don't, you know, it's not defeatist for me to say I just don't know how we get past that. I just don't know. Both Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan saw UFOs uh, before and/or during their time in office, and they were both very excited about the subject. Uh, In Reagan's case, 
he was talking one time, I don't remember what the speech was, but someone asked him about a UFO that he had reported seeing when he was in the air. Uh, and he got really, really excited about it and was talking about it. Then he realized he was talking to a reporter, and he suddenly clammed up. Carter, before he went into office, was all for UFO disclosure. And I believe he was completely sincere in that. You'll notice once he got in office, boom, suddenly he wasn't talking about it anymore. They briefed the presidents. The presidents know what's going on. Uh, I don't believe that the Joint Chiefs are hiding anything from them. In fact, I'm pretty sure that they debrief them once they come in. Uh, there are all kinds of military aspects regarding UFOs. Sabotage is a regular activity that's rampant in the files. Uh, how are you going to tell Ma and Pa America or just anyone in the world that their kids are being picked up by strangers not even from the local neighborhood and God knows what's being done with them? <laughs> how are you going to tell them that? So from a realistic standpoint, no, they're not going to disclose this. They're just not. There are too many people out there that would not understand. If people want to find out, the information is there for them to pick it up. They can get it from the documents. They can get it from the stuff that comes out from FOIA. They're not going to get all of the details. And a lot of those details, I understand why they want to keep them secret, because they, it, it touches directly with nuclear programs and with weaponry and all of that. Uh, I don't believe there are any researchers in the field who... who uh, are really against the military completely. There are a lot of them who may have differing views on them. But I think that every single one of them recognizes that there are legitimate security concerns that do need to be kept secret. Uh, for me, it's uh, the exact equivalent of, say, uh, nuclear missiles. I believe the public has the right to know that nuclear missiles exist. We even have the right to know how many of them there are, and we pretty much know where they are. We don't have the right to know what their operating codes are or their any of their specific uh, logistics for very obvious reasons. So there's a kind of a delicate balance there, and governments always err on the side of caution. Uh, they're always going to be conservative, they're always going to be a little bit paranoid, and they're always going to cover their tracks. So they prefer to just deal with things quietly and, and privately and behind the scenes and not clue everybody else in on it. At least that's my take on it. Yeah, that seems to be the case. I mean, I can understand why... They don't want to tell everybody. They, that's the you know I'm talking to the wrong people here in a sense. Uh, where it's like, I would like I'd like to hear the argument, I guess, for disclosure in the face of all of these problems that would come about. Because I, I can't really see it other than that we deserve to know. And it's like, do we really deserve to know? I mean, I don't think so. Their argument, and it's a legitimate one, is: Do you really want to know? Are you going to sleep better if we tell you all this? And the underlying problem really comes down to, you know what, we just don't want to rock the boat. We want everyone to keep going out and buying things and keep the economy moving. We don't right, want right. them worrying about uh, whether there are Russian spies in their backyard, let alone whether there are Martians coming around and abducting their kids. So they just, again, are on the side of caution and say, look, let's just not rock the boat. If you really want to know, you can find out. There is enough information out there for you to find out. Uh, but who are you going to tell? Who's going to believe you? And then you put yourself in the government's shoes. What are you going to say? Uh, we've had pilots that have permanently disappeared. And what are you going to tell them? Frederick Valentich just disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> He's gone. Yeah. His plate is gone. Where the hell is he? Uh, he reported seeing a UFO. He was nervous. He was scared. And suddenly he's not there anymore. Uh, so suppose I'm right. Suppose my thesis is completely right. What am I going to do? Go to Mrs. Valentich and the kids and say, okay, it's like this. Your husband was taken by the Martians. We have every reason to believe that he is being treated just fine and that nothing bad has happened <laughs> to him. But you are never going to see him again. But he's being he treated have, just fine. 
He's, he's probably being treated just fine. <laughs> Operative word being probably. I don't even know that for a fact. <laughs> the point is he is gone. You are never going to see him again, and he might as well be dead for all practical intents and purposes. So, you know, put yourself in the government's shoes and have that conversation with people. What are you going to do? So they just keep a lid on all of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Nick, like, you know, you, you expressed your uh... – Apathy, I guess you could say, for the big event in April, and I'm I'm in total agreement with you. And uh, I had a similar conversation with Bill Burns just about sort of, uh, you know, if, if money was no object, or or even if uh, even if it was a hard scrabble way like we're doing now in the world of UFO research, I mean, is there is there a better is there a better way to build this mousetrap? Is there a better way to sort of go about uh, solving the mystery of the UFOs uh, or getting you know or getting Answers, I guess you could say, beyond because forcing the government to do it doesn't seem to be working. So, is there a better way to do this to figure it out? Well, I mean, you know, we've got massive amounts of highly credible testimony, but unfortunately, generally speaking, the testimony doesn't come with physical evidence or documents. You know, it comes from elderly retired people who want to clear the decks and you know get a st- get the story out that they were involved in, say, back in the 40s or 50s. Which is great, you know, but at the end of the day, no disrespect, it, it still doesn't prove anything. And right. as I said, I think the real deep secrets are hidden, you know, in these highly classified programs. Um, and so I think that's why things like disclosure inevitably surface, because it, in some respects, it's almost like a subconscious uh, frustration at the fact that we are at this brick wall stage, so people quite understandably try and come up with other ideas like disclosure. But I just don't see it happening, as I said, not from a defeatist perspective, but because you're you're dealing with people who, who just don't want this information out. And I just don't understand the naivety of thinking, people thinking if you shout loud enough, they're going to cave in. Of course they're not going to cave in. Right. Everybody thinks they want to know. Do they really want to know? Yeah, that's, you know, when you put it that way, I kind of feel the same way, too. It's like, I would like to know, but then at the end of the day, I'd probably regret it, because, I don't know, things are going pretty good right now. I don't, <laughs> I don't even know. They're opening cans of worms, and, and it's just it's very understandable to see why they would have that view. Uh, there are simply too many questions that would arise, and if you just look at, at terrorist attacks that we have from our next-door neighbors or people from other countries... You want to extend that to uh, another planet or other planets? Uh, we have nuclear sabotage taking place. I uh, just wanted you all to, to rest easier. Our nuclear weapons can be reprogrammed at any time by people not even from this neighborhood. Just wanted <laughs> you to know that. Rest easy, though. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, it's wild stuff. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Beyond the question of, uh, okay, you know, do you want it to happen or will it happen? Part of me is just sort of, well, or do you do you not want it to happen? I mean, uh, you know, part of me wonders if it ever will happen. I got into this 10 years ago. I still haven't seen an, an iota of sort of motion toward figuring this all out. So part of me is, I guess, in, uh, wisened over time where I'm like, eh, you know, I could probably die and not find out. and That may happen. And maybe when I was younger, I didn't feel like that. Nick, when you first got into this, because you've been in this for a while, did you did you think that this sort of thing was sort of inevitable? Because I've talked to other people who who were in the same kind of boat, where they were like, they got into it, and they were like, ah, they're going to figure this out in a few years. And, you know, you're still sitting here wondering. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's one of these things where 
all research, you know, somebody made a point that every researcher who's come before this generation or the last one or whatever has gone to their graves not firmly knowing the answers. So mm. why shouldn't the rest of us, you know? <laughs> Sounds a bit bleak, but why not? <laughs> um, but on the other hand, what I do think is to our advantage is that because the subject is so strange and arguably un unpredictable, maybe something would happen one day where the whole thing comes spilling out. And I think rather than sort of organized disclosure like rallies or foyer or whatever, it could be some unpredictable issue that we haven't even considered that brings the story tumbling out. You know, maybe when Bruce had, you know, Bruce has a valid point about uh, researching, um, you know, FOIA files because sometimes things get, get overlooked because the sheer weight of documents that are coming up for a declassification and somebody overlooks, you know, a section or a paragraph. That might open doors if something, you know, there's a, an obscure reference to a project that opens a door to what the project was and that opens a door to something else. So I think that although the trend is continuous, continuing as it was in the 40s and 50s where we get lots of reports but no hard physical evidence, that could continue. Or it could change overnight because of something unpredictable and the subject is, you know, sort of a very weird one. So I don't dispute that could happen. But equally maybe the trend will continue as it always has. I mean, you could argue it both ways, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's you know, like I always say on the show, it's a strange world, and things change overnight, you know. Mm. On September 10th, 2011, no one really yeah. could imagine what the hell was going to happen the next day. So who knows, you know. On, on August 14th, 2013, something crazy could happen, and the whole world could change, so. Um, well, you've both kind of written about this stuff in the past, uh, talking about sort of the Hollywood influence on things, and, and uh, Bruce, you said that you had read Nick's book recently, so I figured I'd... Read it recently and reread it over the last couple of days. Look at that. This guy's this guy should be uh, Rux of America here. You're, uh, you're showing me up already, but... <laughs> well, you're doing fine. Thank, well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, I mean, what, what was your take... Uh, uh, on uh, Nick's take on on this sort of uh, Hollywood influence on uh, the UFO subject, and, and how do you think it's sort of shaping up here now as, as uh, the years have gone by since you put out your book? Well, I think we're both pretty much on the same page. Uh, Nick will have to speak for himself on that. Uh, I do believe that there is something of a, a sort of disclosure project and a misinformation and disinformation project simultaneously. The right hand doesn't necessarily know what the left hand is doing or doesn't like what the left hand is doing, and so is doing things its own way. Uh, it's uh, a little confusing. I don't believe that there is uh, an end game in sight. I mean, I don't think that there's like some projected date where they say, okay, now we can disclose it. Yeah. I just think it's an open-ended program. Uh, what I notice is that politics very strongly affects that program, and that was one of the things I was writing about. You can see the, the change in different administrations and the thrusts that they take. Uh, which is one of the reasons I think presidents are briefed on this, that they know about it. Uh, they use it to their own effect, and they use it to sell their own agendas. Uh, you will more often than not, though there are obvious exceptions, find the more threatening uh, extraterrestrial menaces coming during Republican administrations that want to beef up the, the military wagon. Uh, and you'll find the more thoughtful and, and interesting ones coming out of the Democratic administrations. Again, there are exceptions. But I think that's the general rule of thumb. And do you think that comes down from who? 
the president or the people who run this whole uh, UFO operation? Because that would stand, that would that would suggest that there was a change, you know, that the people in charge of uh, the UFO information, you know, changed with the administration, which I'm skeptical of. Well, they also use it for their own agendas. For instance, uh, there was a distinct change toward uh, making a militarization of space uh, the agenda once Johnson came in, as opposed to Kennedy. Uh, with Star Trek, for instance, I've just been talking with Chris Knowles recently. He writes about this quite a bit. Uh, Star Trek is taking the military out into space. We don't advertise it as the military, but pretty plainly that's what's taking place. And this is at the same time that uh, Johnson is wanting to escalate Vietnam and does escalate Vietnam. So you start seeing these kind of sinister oriental figures coming out. We have Klingons and Romulans and all this kind of thing because we're fighting the enemy. Yeah. And that's just how you sell it. Uh, They use it for their own ends. Uh, it doesn't all just come down to UFOs or how UFO information is going to be handled. That goes into it. I'm sorry, is that me or you? <laughs> I didn't hear anything. Oh, that's my phone then. <laughs> um, it, uh, anyway, um, there is a kind of an influence that you can see taking place, and it's being used for several different agendas. And it's not just the president. It's not just the Joint Chiefs. It's a kind of an alchemical process taking place between all of them. Right, but, right. And like spy agencies like the CIA and shit like that. And, certainly. Yeah. And even when there's a sea change, uh, according to politics, for instance, you'll notice that torture porn has become a standard in movies now. Uh, we just gratuitously show incredible torture, and that started coming out right after Bush took office, and we have the whole 9-11 thing. It's like, well, let's advertise torture. Torture's good. Torture saves country. And suddenly we've got torture porn just... It, thrown at us from every angle. Uh, this is the kind of thing that I'm talking about and, and how it gets used by different administrations. And, and Nick, what do you – what do you? that's a lot to chew on, but uh, I'll sort of throw it back to you and just sort of under the umbrella of, uh, you know, I guess Hollywood is propaganda because that's kind of, uh, I think, the, the overarching theme of science fiction secrets in a way. Yeah, I think I think Bruce certainly went into all that kind of angle far deeper than I did. One of the things I did was to sort of look at government files where there were clear overtones with sci-fi. Um, I mean, one classic example is, you know, I, I did chapters studying, for example, the FBI files on various sci-fi authors like Philip K. Dick, um, and also um, the files on L. Ron Hubbard. Um, oh, yeah. you know, and Scientology, where it wasn't so much this the, the issue that that uh, um, you know Bruce has covered far more deeply than me. This sort of hmm. the interaction between government and and the world of, of sci-fi and Hollywood. I was sort of more looking at you know what, what the government sort of know about people in the field and to what extent you know that there has been interaction. I mean, um, I, I mean another cl- classic example is how there seems to be clear indications that at times maybe agencies have been inspired by sci-fi, you know, to research things like invisibility, for example, mm. and, and anti-gravity, right. and, and even ray gun-type weapons, that sort of thing. It's, you know, there are a number of files that talk about historically from the, histi- from the sci-fi perspective and then determining if this can be sort of turned into a real weapon. So, you know, I'm sort of more interested in the the influence of sci-fi on, you know, on government rather than this sort of interaction to necessarily get a a theme out into the public domain, which is more sort of the the angle Bruce is covering, I think. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it seems that way. Well, certainly we can agree that the government's interested in, in these people oh, that yeah. are producing yeah. content. Yeah. Which is, you know, and like Bruce said, to what end? You know, all kinds of agendas. Um, let me see what else. Oh, Men in Black. I wanted to ask you about this because uh, Bruce has had a Men in Black experience. Um, right, Bruce? We talked about this on the show. Uh, I think, I've uh, had more than one, but there was one very very memorable one. And and you 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 kind of uh, intimated that it was sort of um, that it was like a, a normal well not normal but a dude like a regular guy a government guy right you think? Well, mine was too. That's not Bruce. I'm saying you. Oh yeah yeah yeah. He was just a guy dressed in regular street clothes. Uh, he came into the place where I was hanging out, uh, the coffee shop where I hang out. Was he dressed as a man in black though, or just? Oh uh, no no. He okay. Was, you know, just, so you just you just kind of followed, I guess you could say. Yeah. Uh, this was an appointment. Someone set this guy on me. I'm pretty sure I even know who exactly that person was just by various things that he said. I mean, I could name him. I'm not going do to, that but I'm pretty sure I know who it was. <laughs> In any event, uh, I had just gotten my publisher that week. And I don't know, one, two days later, I'm out having coffee, and some guy a couple of booths away from me strikes up a conversation with me. Just a casual conversation. And uh, he finds out that I'm writing, and then he asks what about and uh, we talked for, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes, and he seems genuinely fascinated by all of this, and asked if he can come join me. And I say, sure, why not? And we chat for a little bit. And in the middle of one of my sentences, he interrupts me and says, you know, there are some guys, there's nothing wrong with them at all. They're perfectly sane, perfectly normal, perfectly healthy, but they just disappear. They go into a mental asylum someplace in some other state, and no one ever hears about them again. They never hear from them again. That happens. And, you know, he's got my attention. <laughs> <laughs> Plainly, he came specifically to threaten me, and that's exactly what he did. And it was a completely stupid move on whoever, the part of whoever sent him. It's, it's just a complete blunder. Uh, even the mafia doesn't go after a witness after they've talked, you know? Yeah. The, the hit's off. <laughs> so we're not going after you. I was being threatened with rendition before we knew what that word was. Not extraordinary rendition, but they were saying, we can make you disappear. We can just put you in a mental hospital, and no one's even going to know you're there. You'll just disappear for years, and that's the way it's going to be. Uh, well, nice that you can tell me that. Thank you very much. You have a nice day, too. Uh, but, yeah, that that does happen. Yes. Now, do you think – now, I don't want to get into who sent him or anything, but do you think uh, – w- was he sort of working at the behest of just some private jerk, or was he, you know, sort of uh, tied in via, you know, nefarious government means, if you will? The guy is CIA. He would not say that himself, but he does have a website, and on his own website, he talks about having been a um, agent provocateur on college campuses during the Vietnam War for the military. Damn. He was working military intelligence. He says so himself, and he says he was the guy that was on the campus specifically to stir up trouble in order to justify putting down the trouble. Oh, God. How do you get a job like that? That sounds like fun. Oh, that's standard. <laughs> That's just standard. That's, that's standard intelligence uh, counter techniques. Now, Nick, when you've looked at the Men in Black, is it strictly the ones who, you know, wear the costume, or, or do you sort of uh, look at also this kind of idea of harassment in a way? Mm. Well, yeah, I kind of cover everything. I mean, I've written two books on the Men in Black. I'm actually working on a third one now because there's so many cases mm. and theories. And, and my view is that when people say, well, who are the Men in Black? I always reply by saying, well, which ones? Because... To me, at least, it's clear there are two, at least two categories of men in black. You know, back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, 
people in government, um, you know, in military intelligence agencies, etc., they wore black suits and fedora-type hats because that was the style then, you know, but they typified the men in black appearance. How, and they looked, they looked like, you know, they could handle themselves in a fight, which is what you want, you know, you know if you're going to have a, a law enforcement agency or whatever, or an intelligence gathering agency. But yeah. then you have these other MIB, sort of the weirder ones that people like Brad Steiger and John Keel wrote about, you know, these little skinny guys, like five foot tall and you mm. know, looking anemic and anorexic and just a lot of sort of paranormal almost overtones to the stories and very unsettling where the witnesses felt, you know, they were in the presence of something like evil. Um, and yet the sort of the style of the clothes was very similar. And there are indications that maybe official agencies are fully aware of the existence of these other MIB, they may not even know what they are, but they possibly even imitated them as a means to cover their own tracks. So, I th as bizarre as it sounds, I think there are at least two groups of MIB. There's, there are the government ones who, you know, go out to investigate cases that may be of significance and national security perspectives that they don't want people to talk about. But then you have these other ones whose agenda. Jesus, almost like a chilling agenda to silence people, and, and who knows what they are or where they're from. You know, you've got theories from excuse me, extraterrestrial, extra-dimensional, interdimensional, demonic, paranormal. You know, the list of time <laughs> yeah. travelers, the list goes on and on. That's why it's so fascinating, but I think it comes down to the fact, at the end of the day, that there are two types of MIV, I think. Yeah. Now, it's, uh, Hillbilly mentioned here in the chat room, he's throwing in a bunch of your questions, and it was actually something that I was thinking of uh, while you were talking about the the oddness of uh, the men in black. Have you looked at this black-eyed kid phenomenon at all, and, and what do you think of uh, of that whole thing? Yeah, I actually have. I wrote the forward for David Weatherly's book okay. on the subject, which is a really good one. And, um, yeah, you know, there are some parallels where a lot of people think with the men in black, you know, they knock on the front door, and they're going to barge their way in and, you know, push against the wall and threaten you. They don't. They sort of patiently wait on the doorstep and to be invited in, which sort of is classic parallels with the old vampire legends, you know. And the black-eyed kids do that. They ask to be invited in. And in one sense, well, actually several senses, the, the black-eyed children are kind of similar to the men in black because they're often described as pale, often turn up on doorsteps late at night. And like the men in black, they've got their head covered, yeah, okay, it's a fedora in the past and it's a hoodie today. Yeah, yeah. But So you actually do have several different angles that kind of parallel things in some respects. So, I don't know, maybe, they, maybe the black-eyed children grow up to be men in black, you know, 20 years down the line. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, did, I did actually have men in black around me. The guys in the suits, they didn't have the fedoras, but I did have, I called them the Penguin Squad or the Undertakers. Uh, this was before the other nonsense. Yeah. Uh, for weeks or even months before I actually got published, uh, again, at the coffee shop where I hang out, uh, there weren't many people there at the time and when, at the hours that I was going. And I would go and just sit in the corner booth and get some writing done, some reading done. And I would notice like two or three different tables of guys in suits, just, you know, two of them at a table, uh, that never ordered anything, didn't have a newspaper in front of them, just had a glass of water put there. And they never said a word. They just sat there. 
That's weird. <laughs> a friend of mine would come and visit. We'd be talking about exactly what we're talking about right now. We'd just be having this kind of conversation, you know, routinely. And these guys would never say a word. Every now and then one of them might pull on his face a little bit, depending on what we said. Uh, and we'd even talk about them every now and then and say, do you suppose we should invite them over? They look kind of lonely. And then we'd just sort of ignore them and continue on with, we, with what we were doing. Their intention is very plainly to intimidate. They're, the entire reason they are there is to intimidate you. They are there to make you uncomfortable. If they don't make you uncomfortable, it bothers them. <laughs> yeah. The best way to deal with these guys is just ignore them, really. Uh, recognize why they're there and just ignore them. So I think I asked. I think you. I remember you telling the story on, on the uh, at Ruck's giving. Uh, but I'm wondering. So I presume, aside from kind of uh, sort of talking smack about them while they were <laughs> right next to you, you never really like went over or said anything to them or had any interaction with them. What about like a waitress or anything? Did any hum, was there any human interaction between them at all? Uh, just the waitress giving him a glass of water. I think that the waitresses were uncomfortable with them too and just kind of stayed away from the table. She must have been pissed when the bill came because that's not much of a tip. <laughs> Oh, I hope they tipped. <laughs> they could at least do that. We did actually stop one night. There was one guy uh, who was sitting in a booth right behind us, and he was not dressed in the penguin suit. Uh, he had this stack of books, and he had a kind of baseball cap on, and he was otherwise wearing normal clothes. Uh, and he seemed to be paying very definite attention to our conversation, but he wasn't obvious about it. Yeah. Uh, on one of the trips to the bathroom, the guy that was with me came back, and he, he just kind of said... You know, that guy has got NASA stuff with him. His cap says NASA. And we laughed about it just like I am now. How weird. We said, okay, fine, you know, whatever. Uh, but we left and paid the bill, and then I usually smoke a cigarette outside. So we just waited outside. Thought, as soon as we got up, we hadn't been outside for even a minute before he got up and paid his bill. And we thought, let's just ask him when he comes out. Say, you know, where are you from, man? What's up? We noticed the NASA stuff. Oh, wow. He literally ran past us. <laughs> drove off like a bat out of hell. Jesus. And we just laughed our asses off. We thought, what the fuck? <laughs> That's weird. That is really weird. It was very funny. You wonder if, like, the lines got crossed and, like, you guys left and he went over to the two guys. Well, the two guys in suits were there, too, right, or no? They were there, too. Oh, maybe, yeah. yeah, maybe he went over there and he was like, what the fuck are you doing here? I'm, I'm, I'm covering the shift this week. Oh, no, we watched it. We could see it from the window outside. Oh, he just got up and bolted, huh? Well, he casually, I mean, no. just very casually collected his stuff, got up and casually paid his bill, and then ran like a bat out of hell. Jesus. <laughs> into his car, and he tore out of there. It's like, what the fuck, man? Hey, dude, even if you were here for surveillance, you could at least come up with a bullshit lie that would easily fly past everybody. It's not like we were going to ask him, hey, man, you hear spying on us? We were just curious what his gig was. That's weird. Now, Nick, you've researched these Men in Black quite a bit, obviously. Uh, what what kind of? Because I was fascinated because the black guy told you you never hear any, barely hear any stories about interaction between people and the and the uh, BEKs. But I presume because you've heard of tons of MIB cases, what's the? I, I, and I also presume there's probably no average uh, interaction. But <laughs> what's you know is there an average interaction between people and the MIBs, or you know is it kind of like as frigid as Bruce is describing his experience? Well, yeah, I mean, most of the cases tend to occur... Uh, the weirdest thing is sometimes the the events themselves that sort of provoke the MIB visit, sometimes they're really sensational reports, you know, contactee cases or a landing in the middle of the highway late at night, that kind of thing. Other yeah. times, somebody just happened to have 
told a local newspaper they just saw a weird blue light crossing the horizon, you know, and, and that's it. And yet, so the MIB, there isn't really a way to sort of necessarily track what sort of cases are, attract their attention. It's just so mm. off the wall. But typically, the cases I've found, the MIB almost exclusively turn up at night. Um, they seem to have prior information on the events that the witness hasn't shared with anybody, aside from perhaps close family members. You know, it's not been discussed on the local TV news or anything like that. Um, they seem to have sort of almost like hypnotic effect over some of the witnesses who get this sense of almost like a like a dread and fear emanating, or, or provoked, I should say, by the MIB, and the sense that there's something not quite right about them that they can't really put their finger on. Um, so a lot of things like that, and, you know, a lot of where the, where the um, I guess, the sense of, of reality and common sense goes out of the window, where... You know, afterwards, after the MIB have gone, the person then thinks, well, why did I on earth even let them in at 11 o'clock at night on a Wednesday night or something? You just wouldn't do yeah. it. But they do. So it's like their senses have been overloaded or, you know, yeah. manipulated. Those are a lot of the characteristics I've found time and again. What's weird, I've got more than a few reports on file where in the immediate aftermath of these very weird reports, people have reported things like, poltergeist activity in the home and, and stuff like that, which is Jesus. which takes you down really strange avenues, you know, far beyond just some, hi, I'm General Smith, you know, flashing an ID card or whatever. Yeah, yeah. That makes you, you know, what is that, some after effect from the UFO leaving, that it's like. <laughs> well, who knows what it is, but I mean, yeah. if it was just one or two cases, but I've got, you know, I've got sort of 10 or 15 where, Things have occurred that you would probably more associate with, like, malignant spirits and, and that kind of thing, not Jesus. the men in black. But I think that's because they've become so, associate, excuse me, so associated with UFOs when you can actually find MIB overtones in other aspects of the paranormal where people get weird visits and things like that. How about a Bigfoot case? Has that ever happened where somebody sees a Bigfoot and then, or, you know, the next thing you know they're yeah. getting visits from strange people? Yeah, actually, in Monster Files, I've got a chapter where Stan Gordon uh, wrote a book called Silent Invasion, when Stan yeah. was investigating a number of Bigfoot cases in Pennsylvania in the early 70s. Uh, he and a number of witnesses were visited by people from government who were interested. What was interested, they weren't just they weren't just taking a note of the everyday sightings of, oh, somebody saw a strange thing in the woods. It was where the Bigfoot cases seemed to reek of like high strangeness where, for example, weird lights had been seen hovering over the woods at the same time as Bigfoot was seen, or somebody went into a trance and started almost like channeling when they saw Jesus. Bigfoot. Those were the reports that interested the military. Um, you know, not just the fact that somebody happened to see this hairy thing in the woods. So, again, it suggests maybe, maybe the MIB is somehow linked with you know, they're almost like paranormal police, you know, policing the entire world of the paranormal, but we're so focused on the UFO angle, it's like not seen for the wood, for the trees, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That would make sense, yeah. That's interesting. It's kind of like the movie, although I guess in the movie they're chasing just aliens. Yeah, um, and they look like government people <laughs> rather than skinny anorexics, and, you know what I mean? Right, right. Now... Uh, to sort of revisit the question in a way, um, do people like they let them in the house? Is the what's the conversation generally like? Because if they're in a haze, do they even remember it, or are they 
you know, are they are they like feel hypnotized? Will they have to tell the truth kind of thing? Or what, what do they say it's like to talk to these? Well, well what's people? interesting, most people don't feel hypnotized at the time. It's like they're just reeling the information out without necessarily thinking about it. It's after the MIB have gone and their mind comes back to normal. Then they start going over in their mind, well, was I hypnotized? Was I under some sort of spell? But at the time, they're not sort of fighting the spell. They're just reeling it all off, you know, bit by bit. Um, but a lot of people do report that. A lot of people, weirdly... Um, feel exhausted and you know afterwards like a i don't know like a diabetic might feel i guess when they start to crash if they've missed a meal or whatever you know and yeah. some of them actually felt that these things are almost like a psychic vampire sort of bleeding us dry not of blood but of almost like a psychic energy if such a thing exists so it gets into very very weird areas you know a lot of people look at it just from the angle of government people flashing id cards and saying you won't talk about this mr smith it's not. It gets into very sort of radically strange areas. Yeah, yeah. None of that happened to you, though, Bruce. You were okay. These just were just look like uh, nosy-type government folk. Oh, these were nosy-type government folk. There was really no doubt about it. They were there solely to intimidate, and it didn't work. Uh, well, someone someone posited a question here in the uh, Vale did uh, posited a question here in the chat, and I'm going to sort of rephrase it in a way. And I, I, I have a feeling that Nick probably gets this a lot, and, you know, maybe Bruce doesn't because he doesn't really uh, appear on a lot of stuff or interact with a lot of folks. Um, but, and I, uh, we'll start with you, Bruce, because uh, we just talked to Nick for quite a bit here. Have you ever had a paranormal experience of your own? And, and you know, if you feel comfortable enough, do you want to tell us about it? I've had several paranormal experiences. Uh, I'm not sure I would talk about them just because I don't want people to think I'm weird. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes, I have had them. And I wouldn't mind sharing them privately under uh, under the right circumstances, I suppose. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. You've piqued my interest now, so I'm going to be calling you sometime. <laughs> but that's fine. There are a lot of things I talk about privately that I'd never talk about publicly. That's <laughs> that's perfectly fine. How about you, Nick? Uh, any uh, sort of weird paranormal experiences? Yeah, like quite a few. I don't, I don't mind talking about it. If people think I'm weird, that's how it goes. I don't care. <laughs> I don't <laughs> think <skin. laughs> Um Yeah, I'll tell you what I have had a lot of, and this is often when I'm deeply involved in investigations, It's a lot of strange synchronicities where you're clearly, well, I clearly believe that there's something interacting with us that, you know, pushes us down certain avenues to meet certain people at the right time, or, you know, you're looking for a book you can't find anywhere, and then you just happen to go into an old second-hand bookshop, and there it is. You look right at it as you go in. I've had a lot of weird stuff like that happen that lead me to believe we should pay attention to synchronicities because, you know, whether it's the Matrix, you know, real-life Matrix, what it is, I don't know, but something is sort of... It's almost like when you go looking, you can almost create reality as you're going along by following these clues. And I'll tell you what I have had a lot of as well. I don't know if you've read uh, Marie Jones's book on the 11-11 phenomenon. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. well, I've, I, get, I have spates where, like for a week, I'll get seven or eight 11-11 things, and then they may go away for a few weeks, and they'll have it again. And it's like, uh, I mean, I'll give you a classic example. I was out of town doing a lecture in San Antonio. Um, and this, is, this sounds just made up, but I swear it's a true story. When okay. I came back, I, I taped a movie which was all about 
time travel. It was I forget what it's called, but it was with Bruce Willis where he's oh, Looper? Yourself, comes back to kill him and um Yes, Looper. Looper, that's right. And so it's all about, you know, weird time issues. And I recorded it because I was out of town lecturing in San Antonio. When I got back, um, I was going to watch it, and it was split into two. I thought, well, how can the show be, you know, one recording? And then I realized, because when I went in the kitchen, the the, uh, oven was flashing, so we'd had a power cut, you know, the power had gone out. And then when it kicked back in again, the show started taping. So I was in the middle of this thing. And I went into the bedroom where I hadn't actually been, um, when I came back and where my alarm clock was and it was actually flashing at 11.11 so the time had gone off at 11.11 at the same time I was recording a film about time issues you know yeah. and that, that was sort of like really weird and, and freaky you know Yeah. Uh, and it did happen of all time when I was out of town it kind of made me almost think there was some sort of weird supernatural power lurking around the apartment you know what I mean <laughs> oh, <laughs> while I was gone so that's I look weird stuff like that, synchronicities and sort of eleven eleven things quite a lot. Yeah, that's weird. I don't get many synchronicities anymore. I must I must be doing something wrong. <laughs> I have experienced deja vu uh not not frequently, but it seems like I get that uh quite a bit. Didn't you just I don't ask know what to make of that earlier? What's that? Didn't you just ask that question earlier? <laughs> <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, it's, uh, yeah, 11-11. I don't know what to make of that, though. It, it, it's, yeah. yeah. It is I, weird. I, yeah. It's funny, uh, you know, we talk about these, the Black Eyed Kids, 11-11. It's like this new sort of, uh, new generation of paranormal that's come along in the last decade or so, too. It's kind of funny like that, where it's, there's these new stories, uh, that have emerged and pushed old stories like, uh, spontaneous combustion and, and Loch Ness monster like off the, off the radar. What do you, you know, what do you think of that? That sort of uh, progression in a way. Is that sort of natural for the for the paranormal in a way? Or we, you know, is it sort of like table tipping and then, then it became Spawncom and now it's Black Eyed Kids? You want to do that, Bruce? Yeah. What do you think, Bruce? Well, you're talking about zeitgeist, sort of. Uh, there is a, a strange kind of parallel that takes place, and this is noticed by UFO researchers especially. Uh, it's like the UFO phenomenon adapts itself to uh, the era in which it appears. Hmm. Uh, part of that, I think, is just people's perceptions. For instance, uh, a lot of what I think used to be UFO activity uh, and or abductions has been incorporated into fairy lore and uh, other type of phenomenon that, that are recognized uh, religious phenomenon uh, that are recognized by the people that are reporting it. So they're reporting it in the terms that they best understand or they're plugging it into their own mindset. And I think that most of the kind of parallel things that you see happening or or the zeitgeist, if you will, is that. It's just people explaining it in terms that they know. They're probably describing the same phenomenon that's taking place in all ages. They're just describing it in terms that they know best. Hmm. Uh, so no one in the Middle Ages would have any idea what a flying saucer was or even a flying machine, but they might have an idea of an angel. So they're going to describe it in terms of angels or they're going to describe it in terms of fairies or what have you. Yeah. Uh, Other things like the black-eyed kids, I don't know. Uh, If you're talking about John Keel's paranormal tricksters, which is one of his favorite uh, favorite ideas to plug, uh, it could be that there there are just some kind of cosmic jokers out there that, that like coming up with 
whatever trend at whatever time, or they disguise themselves in whatever trend at whatever time. And uh, I wouldn't necessarily rule that out. I think there's a, a lot of that in UFO phenomenon in general. Yeah. It might even be too that it's like, uh, you know, they made a movie about black. Uh, they made a movie about Men in Black and everything. It's kind of, they might be like, we've got to change tactics now and right <laughs> come at something else because we need a new disguise. Yeah, because you know they're like, yeah, they're, we're, we're not we're not freaking people out or or it's not working or something like that. If I were them, I'll tell you this is what would be fun. If I were them and I were going to be performing abductions, uh, I would want to make sure that if there were any people involved that were going to be seen, that they looked like. William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, so that anyone reporting it would say, yeah, Captain Kirk picked me up last night, and they'd automatically be discounted. Yeah, or like a black Hitler. That's right. Like, that's <laughs> black Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> oh. That's a good one. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Travis Walton mentioned this on the season finale, and, uh, you know, this goes to the this goes to sort of the UFO phenomenon. I'll ask you this, Nick, uh, because you you also follow sort of the the pulse of the of the UFO news community, if you will. Um, he sort of put forward the idea that the UFOs, it, kind of what I'm saying about Men in Black, that the UFOs figured out that we have all these cameras now, and they're probably like we got to be better about not being seen by all these cell phone cameras and stuff, and that might explain. I know we get a myriad of uh, UFO footage still, but people are always like, where's the good footage? And it's like, maybe we can't get the good footage because they know that we have the means to get the good footage now. Well, I mean, it could be that, but it could also be the fact that if you look back into history, even in this century, you know, ufological trends changed dramatically long before cell phones came along. For example, you know, the latter part of the 19th century, you had the airships and, you know, the phantom airships. Then um, in the 40s, you had, in the, during the war, you had the Foo Fighters. Then in the late 40s, you had the Ghost Rockets. You had 47, 49 Flying Saucers through the 50s. Then the Black Triangles. You know, in the, in the 50s, you had the Space Brothers. Um, then you had sort of the, the semi-human looking but slightly grey-like aliens that, the, that Betty and Barney Hill saw. Then you had the full-on greys than the insect types of the praying mantises and the reptilians. So in other words, I don't think it's just necessarily the case that the phenomenon is changing to avoid cell phones. The phenomenon is constantly sort of in flux and changing. And I think partly, maybe, I actually sometimes wonder if what we see is almost not like a, a visionary experience. And I don't mean that in terms of, it's all a, a hoax or people just fantasizing. I sometimes wonder if we've never actually seen the phenomena as it really appears, but it sort of manifests according to the cultural expectations of the people of that era. You know, it's kind of like you see what you want to see and, and it bounces back at you. So maybe the real phenomenon, we still really don't know what it is, you know, mm. but it's being perceived as as space brothers, as reptilians, as greys, as fairies, as goblins, as jinns, as demons, you know, as harpies, who knows what, throughout the centuries. Well, the weird part is, you know, you were kind of taking us through that evolution, but it's like, uh, I'm at a loss to sort of say what the prototypical UFO is now. Do you know what I mean? It's like you, we kind well, of even the black it. triangles seem to have gone a little bit, That's you know, I mean. certainly yeah. the 40s, 50s, 60s, it was flying saucer. You had soil samples and tripod landing marks and 
or vehicle interference cases, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> then we had the black triangles. Today, a lot of weird lights in the sky and, you know. I guess that might be it, yeah. Now it's sort of regressed down to just, like, weird lights because I, I, I can't come up with, uh, you know, in 2013 what the average, you know, UFO sighting might be. It doesn't seem like there is one, which is kind of weird in a way. But, again, we're trying to get into the minds of uh, of whatever's behind all this. Um, a lot of it's straight disinformation, too, I think. Uh, it, it's another one of those questions where both sides uh, involved in, in any of this, and like the people on the UFO side of things and the people on our side of things, want to keep everything secret. So they also want to keep people confused. Uh, the mystery airship is a, a great case in point of the tracking phenomenon, uh, this airship was an advanced dirigible. It wasn't anything that, that was significantly beyond the technology of the time, but it was beyond the technology of the time. It was still dressed in the trappings of the time. The people that were coming off of it were dressed in clothes of the day, you know. Yeah. It's like there's a, a certain interplay that's taking place where they want to be seen, but they also want to confuse people. It's very difficult to get a real handle on yeah, it's like it's almost like it has to be plausible in a way, but also fantastical too. Right. It's enough that it's not going to make people immediately uncomfortable. They're going to be more interested and fascinated if they're seeing it in in their own terms. Uh, then it's kind of like, wow, that's a really advanced airship. We have things like that, but this one's really advanced. <laughs> How'd you guys do that? And they don't stick around long enough to answer. They just disappear. In that sense, uh, it might be them planting ideas in our minds to help us advance our technology. I, I've often thought that might be the case. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, and, and again, we go back to sort of this evolution that Nick was talking about. Uh, Nick, obviously, you wrote the fantastic book about contactees. It's amazing that contactees, and I, I know sort of the contactee thing, you know, kind of kept going, but it's amazing that we went contactee, abductee, I don't even know where we're at now. People are claiming they're hybrids. I mean, it's hard to really get a, get a read on sort of what the standard human-alien interaction is, as bizarre as <laughs> well, <laughs> these words you know, coming I out mean, of my mouth are. Yeah, it's definitely changed. I mean, you, you can go back to the 50s. A lot of people write the contactee movement off, but if you look deeply into a lot of their cases, I, again, I think a lot of them were real, and but they were more visionary. You know, I don't personally believe at all they had you know interactions with colonel zax from the planet venus or some hot space babe from saturn but you know this whole issue of going out into the desert interacting with the space brothers and being given these profound stories of wisdom and how we should all live that's no different to religious experiences in the desert 2000 years ago like moses being given the ten commandments and being told how to live you know mm. it's the same thing so I actually don't write off a lot of the contactee stories, but I do wonder if in some respects, because of the somewhat dreamlike angles of some of the abduction stories and the isolated desert locations in the contactee tales, it does sort of smack to me of like an altered state of mind when these when these events occur. And, and again, that's not to put a spin on it of people making it up or fantasizing or whatever. It's just that I think the phenomenon, when it interacts personally with us, may do so in 
almost like a matrix type environment rather than in a literal but we perceive it as being real and it and it bounces back according to you know what we expect or like bruce said with the trends of the technology of the day but perhaps slightly ahead of us you know yeah yeah i was distracted in a sense here because uh chris Pinio, who I went to high school with, is listening to the <laughs> in the chat room and listening to the live show. And he wants to know uh, if it's possible that we're so much more aggressive than aliens that even though they have better technology, it's not worth their time to engage with us. You know, that's a large part of my thesis. Yeah, I think that's that has a lot to do with it. Um, why would they want to interact with us when we're shooting at them, even if we can't hit them? I like to use Guantanamo Bay. As an example, old Guantanamo Bay, not new torture heaven Guantanamo Bay. Um, we have a base in Cuba, and every now and then, let's say, you know, we've got some armed guards that are just standing there, and maybe we have some kids that sail by on rafts periodically who are locals, and they laugh at us, or they try and talk with us, or they flip us off, or what have you, and we just sort of ignore them, or we laugh at them. So let's say one of them one day comes by, and he's made a zip gun, and he shoots it at us. It misses. But, you know, he had a 22 caliber bullet, and he had a, a means of delivering it our direction with lethal speed. Um, the chances of his actually hurting us are pretty low. However, we're going to be a little warier of him from now on. <laughs> we're going to kind of keep our distance from him or make sure he keeps his distance from us. Yeah, and they don't want to shoot him because it will cause, like, an international incident. There so, you go. Yeah. It's like, you know, what am I going to do? It's a kid. But uh, he's also shooting at me, not very effectively, but he is shooting at me, and if he happened to hit, he could hurt me. So i got to look at him differently now. That's an interesting, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Well, uh, there's uh, the idea I wanted to, uh, I lost my train of thought there when uh, when that question was posed, but there was something that Nick said I wanted to go back to here. We're bouncing all over the place, folks. This is the live format. Oh, I should also say, if folks want to call in, we've got 20 minutes left, so if somebody wants to call in with a question, uh, I guess we can allow it since it is the inaugural live show. But uh, what, what you were saying, Nick, about, you know, uh, that this could be, that, that the human mind is involved in, in a lot of this and stuff, and it's disappointing in a way, and there are folks, like you mentioned uh, Marie Jones, she does some great work on this stuff, and uh, Larry Flaxman, too, uh, when they put out their books and stuff. But, but there's almost a resistance, in a way, from the paranormal community to, uh, you know, co-opt the human mind in this experience or, you know, um, acknowledge the possibility. This, this is like blowback, in a way, you know, and I think you kind of touched on it when you were saying that. Well, I think one of the reasons why there's a resistance is because a lot of the people who do resist this kind of angle are very much the ones who grew up in the era of like Kehoe and Stringfield where it was all nuts and bolts alien scientists coming down here to do this and do that and there was no sort of esoteric or you know supernatural elements to it there was no sort of largely tie-ins with folkloric angles before the likes of like Keel came along and that kind of alien scientists visiting the earth mindset has become so dominating in the old school you know and the, the older organizations and i think it's just see it's almost like a a culture shock where you know realizing that potentially things like the ingestion ingestion of psychedelics can actually provoke 
um, interactions that in some respects are sort of eerily similar to contact cases and sometimes abductions uh, where it sort of opens a, a metaphorical door which may not just be something created by the mind it may be that these things are so weird that the best way to contact them is an altered state you know not try and blast them out the sky or track them on radar and mm. that's that's the thing is that there are so many people who've been in the field for so long they cannot wrap their head around things other than documents radar reports pilot encounters things like that it's they just don't want to know about this other stuff and so you know, you, you, things get polarised and one camp doesn't want to work with the other camp and the other camp just doesn't believe what they're talking about is even feasible in the first place. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's changing for the better. I mean, since I've been in this whole thing, it's definitely, you're seeing more people uh, sort of embrace this paranormal bouillabaisse idea where there is, like, some connection between all this and maybe it has to do with the mind in a way. And, I, and like I, I mean, I've said this a myriad of times on the program, where it's, you know, there's nothing wrong with it having some connection to the mind. I feel like that there's this, like as I said, this brushback. But it's like, no, it's okay. Even even you know, ghosts or whatever. It's like, even if it originates from the mind, that's amazing that the human mind can do this. So don't be disappointed, folks, if it's not aliens, because well, there's also nothing mutually exclusive between, say, psychic phenomena and extraterrestrials. Uh, there can be some kind of interplay taking place there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, they tinker with it, and, you know, they make you see what they want you to see, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. They, they might be manipulating things by uh, techniques that we're just not familiar with. Exactly. That's the, uh, you know, like I said, we can't trust these aliens, even if they came down and were like, we're cool. Well, I've seen V. I know all about that. Yeah, how would you know? <laughs> how would you know? Look, if some guy came down and uh, let's say some guy walked into where I have coffee like these other clowns did and wanted to convince me that he was some alien from some other planet, what have you, because he looks just like us, and I, that's what I would expect. So, yeah, he looked like a human being. Uh, how the hell would I know that this guy isn't pulling my leg? And, in fact, he would almost, almost certainly be pulling my leg. So how would he convince me? Well, if he took me out back, took me in his flying saucer, spun me around the moon a couple of times, and then landed me in my backyard, I might take it a little more seriously. Yeah. Um, now, I did notice here, uh, our, uh, my friend Tyler Cokejohn sent me uh, some information here. Nick, you have a, I think he wrote the foreword, but I'm not positive, so clear this up for me. But a uh, new book with uh, Robert Wood, uh, Alien Viruses, Crashed UFOs, MJ-12, and Biowarfare. Uh, I remember I saw Dr. Wood give that presentation in Vegas that time I was out there for the crash conference, so I kind of remember this, but yeah, tell me a little well bit done. more about it. Well, yeah, I mean, there's been actually some misconceptions about this book because it's called Alien Viruses, but as well as writing my own books, what I do, I also offer a, a ghostwriting service to other authors. So, you know, if somebody has a book they want writing, but maybe they don't have the time or they're not familiar with how to write and structure a book, you know, they send all their information to me and hire me to write their book for them. And that's what I did with Bob's book. It's important to note it's not a co-authored book, which, okay. you know, Bruce will know, you know, what I'm talking about, the difference between a co-author and a ghost author. You know, a co-author is where the two are very much in tandem with what's been said and, you know, things like this. A ghost author is just hired to make a bunch of material readable and formatted and coherent. And that's right. what Synthesize. my role in the and book is. It's very was. common. It's surprising how many books are actually ghost written. 
Yeah, and this is, well, I've actually ghostwritten quite a few well-known UFO books over the years, but with the same with Bob's, that this is Bob's story, but he said, would you ghostwrite it for me? So, in, in other words, it's not my book, my story, or my views. Okay, I, yeah. I'm just there to to structure it for the reader in the fashion that Bob wanted it put together. So. All right, nice, yeah. Like I said, I wasn't uh, sure what the uh, situation there was, so I'm glad we... But it's an interesting book that Bob's got, you know, the idea of sort of real-life Andromeda strains, if you like, the idea of alien viruses coming to the Earth against which we'd have possibly no way to combat them, you know. Ebola is almost an example. Ebola doesn't re it doesn't resemble anything that we've ever seen on this planet before. It's got strands that go the opposite direction. Oh, God, really? We don't recognize it. We don't know what the hell it is. Well, that's weird. You notice it's weird. You just, the whole bio warfare thing is is spooky in a sense. It, you notice like it after nine eleven. That's like everybody was talking about that all the time. It was like Jesus, dude. I mean, I know there was like some panics and shit in the uh, in various other decades, but it was like every year there was some new disease. And now the scary part is you don't hear about it at all, really. And it seems like the diseases are worse than <laughs> they were. When there were these flaps in the uh, in the aughts. Well, don't yeah, worry. The next one will be along. It'll be the zombie virus. So that'll be the one to end it all. I know people. This is not even a joke. Uh, hanging out in coffee shops, you meet interesting people, obviously. And I know people that that were seriously going into talk about zombie viruses and what a zombie virus would be and how it would act and all this other kind of thing, as though as though this would exist. Well, you actually have heard stories like that as well, not from the perspective of literal zombies coming back from the dead and attacking the living, but more from the, like, the 28 days later angle of, you know, which actually, you know, people think of the zombies in 28 days later and 28 weeks later. They're not. They're people infected with what's called the rage virus, which, which you know, it's like a more extreme version of rabies where they're driven to kill, but they're not actually dead themselves. You know, they just don't look so good. <laughs> yeah, and I've actually heard a lot of people movie. talking about things like weaponized rabies and things like this, you know, and an airborne version to, you know, send half the population into like a murderous frenzy. And you arguably wouldn't be able to tell the difference between that and a real zombie apocalypse. Right. <laughs> the effect would be the same. There was a, a popular movie that came out a few years ago. Suddenly I can't think of the name of it. Jennifer Carpenter was in it. It was a remake of uh, a Mexican movie that was very popular called Record, where there was a, an advanced kind of rabies virus that was causing that to happen in an apartment building. And the government gets involved, and they have to sequester the entire thing and and quarantine them. Quarantine, that was the name of it. Oh, there you go. Well, it's spooky, but it's like UFO disclosure. You You know... You hear about it, never happens. You hear about these things, they never happen. So I was just waiting to catch you off guard with one of these things. Like the, yeah. uh, I quite like the idea that the zombie virus might actually happen. What? Something like that? Yeah, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't even rule that out. I mean, we experiment with all kinds of stuff, God help us. And if something got out of a lab, this makes for wonderful science fiction stories. Andromeda's Dream is a great story. That was like the first adult novel that I read when I was young. Uh, and I don't find it to be an incredible scenario. And again, I like to point to Ebola as an example. We don't know where Ebola came from. It could have come down on a damn meteorite. Uh, it could just be lying there dormant until some life form picks it up, and some life forms might pick it up and it wouldn't have any effect at all, and others, it, <laughs> it turns us into blood soup. Uh, but we don't know what it is. Well, Nick, you must have, I don't know if you're familiar with the book uh, Dr. Mary's Monkey. 
Um, the name, the author oh, yeah. escapes me. Yeah, I know Jim Barry, Marshall. Uh, Barry is, Farrell. Yeah. Oh, you mean? Yeah. Um, oh, well, that's, that's no. the woman involved. But um, yeah. Edward Ed. Um, oh, what's his name? I forget his name. <laughs> well, the book is Doctor Mary's Monkey, and it's awesome. Yeah. And, uh, it's definitely somebody I've wanted to interview for a while. The premise is that, or the, the theory, I guess you could say, it's it's a straight. Uh, it's a straight nonfiction book, um, you know, that, that they were testing. Oh, what the hell were they testing? They were testing something, and it turned out they accidentally, like, infused a bunch of people with uh, with cancer-causing agents or something like that. I really butchered that. <laughs> was it Ed Haslam? Uh, yes, Ed Haslam, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I haven't read the book in a long time. i got to get back to that one, but uh, definitely somebody I... I want to talk to you, but the gist of it is, is that you know, and it kind of goes back to the old, the, all the AIDS conspiracies too. You know that, that you know, it's possible that these diseases have already been filtered into the uh, into the population, though. You're not sure, literally or accidentally. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the thesis in that one is that it was accidentally, and then they were like, "We got to keep our mouth shut about this because you know we'll be in a lot of trouble." Which they would do. <laughs> <laughs> and could you blame them? Say, "Oops, exactly. you know, we don't want everyone to know about this." Exactly. Um, well, we're really close to the end now. Uh, let me see what, what kind of fun stuff we can do at the end. Look, quick thoughts here, uh, Nick. What are your thoughts on the royal baby? Are you? I know you're uh, from the UK. Are you? Are you excited oh, about another, the future king? Another mouth to feed that comes out of the uh, pocket of the UK taxpayer. That's the way I look at it. <laughs> you know? that's a, I mean, exactly I, I'm not actually anti-royalist per se. What I'm against is having a royal family that really doesn't do anything. You know, if the, if the royal family ruled the country and made the laws, well, that's different. But we have a, a prime minister, David Cameron. You know, the prime, British prime minister is the equivalent of, like, a U.S. president. And they're the ones who rule the country. Today, the royal family is just like a figurehead for bringing in tourists, which has to be supported by the taxpayer. And, you that's know, I just don't extent. see the... Yeah, I don't see the point of having a redundant family just for the sake of upholding 500-year-old traditions, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny, too, because, like, it's like in our country we have Honey Boo Boo and all these sort of, like, trashy <laughs> celebrity stars. And over in the U.K., it kind of works like... <laughs> It kind of, you can kind of see the, the, the sophisticated twist on the whole thing. Because it's still going crazy over a little kid, but it's like, yeah. you guys <laughs> do it the right way, I guess. Um, a quick hit for you, Bruce. Uh, thoughts on the latest developments in the Aurora situation with uh, the shooter there? And I know you were talking about whether they were going to open the theater or not. Um, have the they? The theater has reopened, uh, and I have visited it, and it's it's lovely. It's just wonderful. Uh, I was curious how they were going to get past the numbering of the theater problem because obviously you don't want to be in one of the ones where the shootings took place. So what are yeah. you going to do? Uh, they just they lettered them: theater A, theater B, theater C. Wow. That was very clever. Yeah. There's a, uh, a memento plaque, and I haven't really had a chance to spend some time going through the theater to have a good look at it. But I have been out to the movies a couple of times, and uh, it's just lovely. They've done a very good job. Uh, the case is proceeding well, I think. Uh, any of us that were at the site were contacted by the district attorney's office, who keeps us briefed on literally everything day to day. Uh, every hearing that takes place uh, regarding the assailant, uh, what kind of motions are being filed, and they welcome any comments from any of us. And they're very sincere about that. I've been able to make comments and get responses. Um, I believe it was just handled superbly and uh, continues to be. 
Okay. Looks like this kid's probably just going to be locked up soon anyway. Uh, He's never going to see daylight again. Yeah. Nick, you probably don't know this, but Bruce was at the theater that night in a different theater, in a different, you know, room or whatever, watching Oh, well, not, not that at all. That's why. Yeah. I was in the front on the right side. The shooter was in the back on the left side. Wow. We didn't hear a single shot, never saw a drop of blood, nothing. We had no idea what took place until after the fact. Yeah, until they heard you huh. guys all out in the parking lot. Talk about synchronicity. Well, okay. That's just bizarre. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, folks, tune in to uh, BOA Audio Season 7. we got that one in the archive if you want to uh, hear Bruce's compelling recounting of that night. Uh, we're in the final five minutes here. What's going on with you, Nick, coming out you know, through the rest of the year here? This is fantastic because normally when we do these tape shows, you might be like, yeah, I'm going to be in Augusta uh, you know, on the 15th. And I'm like, there's no way in hell no one's ever going to hear this episode beyond you know, in, until like October 3rd. So, but but now we're live. So, you know, what do you have coming up uh, over the next uh, few weeks, months, and the rest of the year? Um, well, I'll be speaking at a play uh, called the uh, Paracon Conference, which is in Kansas City in September. Then I'll be speaking at the Paradigm Symposium in Minneapolis, which I think is the third Saturday in October. Um and I'm working on a couple more books. As I said, one on the Men in Black mystery, like a third one. And got a couple of ideas for um, a couple of cryptozoology books and possibly another UFO book. And so that will sort of take me well into, you know, the latter part of next year or whatever. So. Nice, nice. How about you, Bruce? Uh, last I heard, I think you were working on getting the uh, the rights back to the book or something along those lines. So what, what's yeah, the latest that, on that? Uh, that's going to be a, a bit of a lengthy project. I'm not expecting to have anything done before the beginning of next year. Um, I still haven't even purchased the PDFs back, which they're not expensive. Uh, I'm, just, I'm going through the process of a lot of that. I have to look at getting picture rights again and what pictures I'm going to have to drop and which ones I might put in, uh, whether I'm going to update and, if so, to what extent, uh, stuff like that. I am looking at um, self-publishing reprints and uh, with some revised material and some updated material. Uh, but I wouldn't expect anything on that before next year. All right, nice, nice. Well, we're uh, in the midst of launching uh, BOA 3.0, which is going to have more of a blog format. So I've been kind of hectoring you about this over the years. Hopefully you'll come aboard BOA and uh, post some uh, some new stuff uh, or some thoughts or whatever the hell you want to post. I don't care. But uh, once oh, we get the that, blog format, that'd be fine. I just I'm, I'm not a luddite, but I'm a little bit behind on a lot of this stuff, and I don't know exactly what what I would be doing. Uh, yeah, just talk with me, explain it to me, and I'd be more than happy to. I'll walk you through the whole process. Don't worry about it. Sure. Um, and and uh, Nick, had, you said you were working on some new uh, books. Anything you want to? Anything specific dates or anything? I may have uh, missed that in, in the confusion. Here. Um, not really. I mean, a lot of it's sort of down to the publishers. I mean. Um, I mean, this one I ghost wrote for Bob Wood. I actually finished the work in, in 2006. <laughs> it's just been released. So, uh, I mean, a publishing can be a funny game sometimes where a book gets held back for ages. But, um, you know, when, these, when the books are out, I always get sort of advance notice so I can let people know at my blog or on Facebook or whatever. So. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right, we got about 90 seconds left. This is like trying to land a plane, folks, so just bear with me. <laughs> bear with me. I told you at the beginning. I, luckily, we didn't have any uh, trouble in the chat room or anything like that, and everything went well. I can't thank you guys enough for doing this. Like I said, uh, I posted that season finale last 
Tuesday night and immediately was on the horn trying to get Bruce and uh, Nick to do this. And uh, you guys were just so gracious and so available, and I really do appreciate it so, so much. Um, folks, if you can help out in all of America, make donations via PayPal or the P.O. Box at BOA. This actually costs money to uh, join up at Blog Talk and, and put out these uh, two-hour shows. And, uh, you know, I said that plural because this is going to be a weekly thing. This isn't just a one-time-only shot. We're going to do a, a weekly program. Hopefully on uh, next Tuesday night's show, we'll have Jason Offit on to talk about his new travel log and to talk about his uh, trip to England and just, uh, you know, fool around and talk about goofy stuff and, and see where the road takes us. So uh, that'll be on the next edition of BOA Live. And uh, on that note, thank you very much, folks, for listening. Have a great night, and uh, we'll be talking to you next week.